0: Welcome to the ECO News Report. My name is Tom Wheeler, your host this week. Today, we're we're going to be talking about something that could be a fun distraction. So if maybe you can get into birding, birding in your backyard. Joining me is my favorite birder, Ken Burton. Ken was a local birder. Now he is in Georgia doing bird survey work down there. So welcome to the show, Ken.
1: Thanks, Tom. Good to be quote-unquote with you.
0: Hopefully, by the end of today's show, people will be able to get an understanding of of Birding 101. Birding can't be as easy as just paying attention to what birds are in your backyard. So we're going to cover things like what is going to be seen in Humboldt County these days. How do you do bird identification? How do you use a bird ID book? And then we will kind of build up the skills. So, you know, you start off noticing the robins and whatnot flittering around, and then you start to get more into it. And then we can start talking about data collection and turning birding from a passion into something that helps scientists understand how bird populations are doing. And there's lots of new and fun ways to do that as well. Ken, what what is necessary for birding? Do you need to have fancy binoculars or, or anything like that?
1: Binoculars, yes. They don't necessarily need to be all that fancy, especially if you're starting out in your backyard technically it's just binocular because the buy makes it plural already. So if, you, if you're looking in a catalog, you probably will see it listed simply as binocular.
0: I imagine that a lot of this is like so much in this world that binocular prices have dropped because there are cheap Chinese binoculars coming onto the market.
1: The technology has just gotten so good that even the low-end binoculars are better than anybody could have imagined a few decades ago.
0: And then we have things like the National Audubon Society field guides that can help in your bird identification. Do you have any any bird books that you would recommend for our area?
1: I do, and although I'm very active with the Audubon Society, kind of the go-to guides these days for most birders are either the National Geographic field guide, The main competition to that book is the Sibley Field Guides. There is a continent-wide version, and then there's also a Western version of that. The illustrations are all done by David Sibley in a consistent style. Those books are really good, too. You can pick up used copies of either of those books for not very much money. It never hurts to have both of them. They give you different perspectives, some different information, different styles of presentation. And my own book, which is called Common Birds of Northwest California, published by our local Audubon chapter, Redwood Region Audubon Society. It is now in its third edition. It focuses on 164 species that are most frequently found in Del Norte, Humboldt, and Trinity counties. And it really is designed for the beginning birder, I think it's a, a great starter book.
0: So if if I were to go into my backyard right now, what are the birds in Eureka, just in the heart of Eureka? What kind of birds might you expect I would see at, at this time of year?
1: For backyard birding, winter really is a little bit more rewarding, especially for people that are doing bird feeding. We've got more birds and a greater variety of birds in our backyards in the winter. But we do have some of the winter sparrows around still for another maybe month or so. And then there's all the, the resident species, our chickadees, jays, nuthatches, maybe if you're in the right area, house finches. Probably in your neck of the woods, you've got some house sparrows, which are a non-native species, but still they're birds and they come to feeders. There's probably some woodpeckers around. Downy woodpecker might be the most expected at a town feeder I guess I'm a little bit partial to chickadees and that might come from my many years as a bird bander. I totally admire their spunk. You you get a chickadee in a mist and it's this tiny little thing that, you know, you could put three or four of them in your hand. Here they are, you know, faced with a monster the size of a human being and just never stop fighting. They just just like, go away, you big monster, you. They just, and they'll, they'll, Peck on your cuticles, and they're not really a lot of fun to work with, but you have to admire their 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 spot. Well, for years I've been toying with this idea of editing a bird poetry book just so I can use this title that I've come up with Waxwing Poetic. Nobody's allowed to steal it.
0: Everybody, you've been forewarned. Don't mess with Ken's intellectual property here. Imagine if I'm looking out in my backyard and I see a bird that I don't recognize. How how do I go about using a field guide to identify or what are, what are my, my ways that I can help to identify this bird?
1: Well, you know, nowadays field guides are almost old school books are are great. I love books, but there are some fantastic apps out there now. And if you can get even a mediocre photo of the bird in question, you can drop that into some of these apps and it will figure it out for you. But there are other apps and even some of the same apps take a different approach And it will ask you certain questions about the structure of the bird, the behavior of the bird. Of course, it'll want to know the location, coloration, maybe habitat. And so those are the kinds of questions that you might want to ask yourself if you're trying to figure out a bird completely on your own. So you want to look at the overall size of the bird, and you might want to do that relative to some other species that you're more familiar with. Like take a robin and say, okay, this bird looks like it's about half that size, something like that, and and get an idea of, you know, how big is a robin really? I think about 10 inches long. Give yourself a reference point so you can get used to estimating the length of a mystery bird in inches, because that information is provided in the field guide. Very helpful. Is it bigger than this? Is it smaller than that? You want to look at overall coloration, but be aware that birds differ in coloration between sexes, usually between young birds and adult birds, and even between summer and winter. So plumage can be extremely variable, even within a single species of bird. I'd say key in more on the consistent features, which are more structural in nature. What kind of bill does it have? Does it have a long slender bill or a heavy seed crunching type of bill or a more generalist bill such as the jays have? The bill structure typically is, is your best clue to a bird's lifestyle and diet. And then things like tail length, whether or not it has a crest, eye color, and its behavior. How is it foraging? Is it feeding on the ground? Is it clinging to branches or the the perches of your feeder? Is it on a tree trunk? Is it upside down or, or right side up? Those things can be useful pieces to the puzzle.
0: The more data, the more clues you have. What are your thoughts about bird feeders? The
1: huge movement right now and, and our Audubon chapter is involved in it towards bird-friendly yards, creating wildlife habitat, you know, within our communities that is attractive to birds and other wildlife think about what the resources that those animals need that is is what is going to make a yard to those animals food shelter nesting sites etc and you can't have a yard that is good for birds really without also being good for insects and lots of people love butterflies right and they plant gardens but gardeners generally hate caterpillars can't have butterflies without caterpillars. Caterpillars are far more useful to birds than butterflies are because caterpillar and other generally non-flying insects are what birds are raising their young on. That's their protein source. So with these backyard birds, no matter what they eat as adults, almost without exception, the nestlings require insects or spiders, but they need protein in arthropod form. So we have to start thinking about creating gardens and yards that support caterpillars, even if those caterpillars are eating the plants that we're planting.
0: Right, of course.
1: Bird feeding is a hugely popular pastime, even among people that I think wouldn't really consider themselves birders. It's a great way to connect with those birds. It's a great way to bring them in close to where you can see them well. It's a great place to kind of monitor the comings and goings of birds from day to day and across the seasons. But yes, there absolutely are ethical issues. There are people who would say that by putting out food for any kind of wildlife, You're altering the environment, you're altering the animal's behavior, and you shouldn't do it. And then there are other people who just say, oh, it's fine to worry about it. And I guess, like most things in life, I think it may be wise to try to find the middle ground. I have been known to feed birds myself. Best to do it kind of in moderation. And I always suggest to people that they not put out so much food that it doesn't all get eaten don't overfeed the birds. Don't let there be surplus food lying around that's going to spoil and maybe create hazard for the birds. A bird can spread bacterial viral infections to one another the same as humans can. And then surplus food also often attracts unwanted animals such as non-native rats when they put in birds. So a little bit of food, let it run out, let the birds have other food sources. They know that your feeder are a potential source of food, but dependent on it.
0: One recommendation I I read on the Audubon's website is also to prevent or reduce the the risk of disease transfer between birds is they recommend cleaning your bird feeders. It makes sense. An
1: excellent idea, and I think it's especially important with hummingbird feeders. Those can get really grungy. I'd say every time you refill your hummingbird feeder, clean it out really well first.
0: So let's assume now that we've gotten people hooked. They've started watching the birds in their backyard. Invariably, for some reason, birders always like to write down the birds that they've seen, and they create these big elaborate lists and other little notes. And those notes can turn out to be important sources of data. And now there are multiple ways for for regular people to be scientists and to help researchers understand how birds are doing. Do you use eBird? Yeah, I use almost on
1: a daily basis, and that's a program that's administered by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology in New York, and it's an amazing resource. It's become a database of just incomprehensible size, hundreds of millions of records. I think they'll probably surpass a billion fairly soon. It's a bird reporting tool and also a, a way for for people to see what is being reported all over the world, where to go to find certain birds or where to go birding in general. But certainly eBird lends itself very well to backyard birding. And basically, any, anybody can report any bird seen anywhere, anytime to eBird. And that information, when combined with all the other eBirders, is a very valuable scientific tool. And they're doing some amazing research with that information. Arnell also runs a program called Project Feeder Watch. And that's designed specifically for people watching the feed in their yards. So the perfect mechanism for citizen science through watching. It's a simple protocol. It's definitely meant for the layperson, and the information is all available on our website.
0: What are the next steps? How can you continue to grow in your your birding passion or hobby?
1: Or obsession. Or yes, obsession, it can yeah. Be a slippery slope. Watch out. I definitely would like to once again bring up our local Audubon chapter, Redwood Region Audubon Society. In normal times, we offer an incredible number and variety of field trips, at least one every week of the year. Every Saturday, 8.30, we meet at Clop Lake out at the end of I Street at the Arcata Marsh and walk around for two and a half hours or so. Different leader every week. It's a great introduction to the birds of the marsh area. Often, a very different set of birds from people are going to see in their backyards. There are several other regularly scheduled field trips. Keep an eye on the on the chapters field trip schedule, and there's well over a hundred trips offered every year. It's an opportunity to get out with more experienced people and get that that kind of one on one face to-face instruction and guidance, I think is, more valuable than maybe not as challenging, but probably more more productive than trying to figure it all out on your own. There are also online birding courses. Cornell offers several and there are other organizations as well. If you can be creative in your Googling, learn how to bird or birding courses online, or it shouldn't be too hard to find a wide variety of opportunities.
0: Yeah, and so pretty soon you'll be listening to bird calls in your free time, and you'll become a serious birder and plan your vacations to go to places that no one else would probably want to go to weird atolls in the middle of the Pacific to see <laughs> a specific bird that's on your, your bird to-do list
1: you got me pegged. Yeah, it can become all consuming, and I mean that in the best way. It's it's a fantastic way to connect with the natural world. I sometimes wonder what it is about birds that make them so appealing to so many people. You know, we wouldn't probably wouldn't be talking about backyard worm watching, for example. I mean, there just are not very many other groups of organisms that, you know, that have the appeal that birds do. And I think I mean a lot of them are very colorful. They make all kinds of cool sounds, so we can experience them both visually and auditorially, and they fly of course which can make them a whole lot harder to get good looks at than say plants but it also means that they can show up in unexpected places and that's i think one of the great allures of birding is that you kind of never know what you're going to get it's almost like christmas every time you go out it's like what's what's under the tree and I sometimes wonder whether we can maybe relate to birds better than other organisms because they're also bipedal. Really, when you think about it, birds and humans are the only full time bipeds in the animal kingdom.
0: Yeah, I guess that's true. The Eco News Report, we are talking about local birds and how to get started in birding in this free time that you may have it's always interested me too that when we we're little kids, we we're obsessed a lot with dinosaurs, and now when you move to be an adult, you're obsessed with the descendants of dinosaurs.
1: Birds are dinosaurs, so I, you know, I started with dinosaurs when I was like four years old, and through a reptile and amphibian phase that lasted a long time, and then wound up with birds. And in a way, I kind of came full circle with that one. I think about what people are doing with themselves these days, all this time stuck at home, and and I think that a lot of people are, are exploring things that they have wanted to explore for a long time and never had the time or whatever. I'd like to think that we'll see a lot more birders at the end of this ordeal. So I think there are a lot of positive things that can come out of this forced isolation. A whole new crop of birders might just be one of them.
0: Yeah, gardeners too. Yeah, here's to that. So if you have the capacity in your life to take on something else, birding can be a a wonderful passion to add. If, however, you know you have a kid and you're running around and you're you're now homeschooling for the first time, it's understandable if if birding might wait until after the shelter in place order is lifted. That's forgivable as well. There there will be birds in the future.
1: You might just find that the kids really get hooked on it.
0: Yeah, lots of lots of good lessons there: biology, math, <laughs> other stuff. I'm sure, geology. There's also a big movement on catios. Yeah. Keep, keeping cats away from these birds. If you want to enjoy birds flying around in your yard, you probably also don't want your, your cat to be killing them.
1: Catios. Yeah. I would say that you cannot have a bird-friendly yard and a cat-friendly yard at the same time. They just don't really go together. But there is this whole, whole new movement towards these things called catios. And you could probably imagine what they are. Basically, it's a it's a way for your cat to be outside and enjoy being outside without interacting with wildlife, because cat-wildlife interactions invariably are bad either for the cat or the wildlife. That's another thing that our Audubon chapter is getting involved in. We have identified a number of catio owners in the community, and we're organizing catio tours, so that people can visit these catios and get an idea of what the, the possibilities are. And I'd say, really, they're limited only by the imagination and your carpentry skills. And those, those tours, are of course, are on hold right now. But again, keep an eye out on the Redwood Region Audubon Society website and newsletter. Cats take an enormous toll on birds. The numbers are, are just kind of staggering. I mean, we're talking literally billions of birds a year. So everything that can be done to reduce that will help the birds. It's one of many, many threats to birds that we actually have some control over and can make a significant difference in with relatively minor alterations to our lifestyles.
0: A lot of cats don't bring in the birds. Your, your cat's probably killing things that you have no idea that it is killing if it has free reign outside. There was a
1: study done right here in Georgia that they put little video, like GoPros, on people's cats. A lot of these cat owners were absolutely shocked to find out what their cats were doing when they were outside.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can appreciate that people also care about their cats and want them to have really rich lives, and catios are a way for your cat to be able to experience the fresh air, to be able to smell something other than your apartment or your house. Let's provide for all forms of life and try a catio out. It's
1: like watching birds too. All right. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for this opportunity, Tom.
0: Have a good one. Bye-bye. Uh, we are talking about local birds and how to get started in birding in this free time that you may have. Donna, you you are Donna Clark. Donna and Jim Clark. Beginning birding in your backyard seems like a good idea. What are your tips for, for someone who is interested in learning how to bird from their backyard? Observe, Observe. The
2: birds first. Notice what they eat. Put out some feeders. You want to have a suet, maybe with embedded insects or other goodies for the things like warblers and the insect eaters. And it's good to have a feeder with just seeds. For the seed eaters, like the sparrows, and some of that will get knocked down to the ground. And you'll notice where these various birds, you don't even have to identify yet, feed. There are ground feeders, insect eaters, eating bugs off the leaves on a tree, and then get a manual, either paper, Sibley's is good, or an application. There's lots of apps for birding, and just start one by one.
0: So collect some data about your birds, and then with more data, you'll be able to identify what birds you're seeing. What do you have in your friend yard these days?
2: Well, going down the list, I think we've seen about 18 species on the Cornell feeder count, which is two days a week, all the birds you see in that two days. It's really good because sometimes you're really disappointed because you didn't see the bird you hoped to see, but then it shows up next week. So there's an element of anticipation, and you're always looking for that bird you haven't seen yet. You become familiar with the birds as they come and go with changing weather patterns. I highly recommend it as a way to get into knowing the birds just beyond what they look like, but what they do.
3: The name of the program is Feeder Watch. It goes from approximately October through April. But you can start now anyway with just keeping track of what you see. For me, once I started really trying to count them and watch them, I realized that I really was seeing more birds than I thought I was. I was becoming a lot more skilled in observing them because I was looking. And then I realized that I could start identifying male and female in some species and really see the trends of how birds changed over time as they migrated through. I've found that by joining Feeder Watch, I have become a much better birder, and it's just loads of fun. And you can start figuring out counting later on. But in the beginning, I would just stick to trying to identify as many birds as you can. There are wonderful apps for the phone. I really like iBird Pro. What I like about it is once you get it, you don't have to be online. You can use it outdoors where there's no hotspots. And I really like that. And it has nice pictures, loads of information. You can check the sound of the bird, the range, information that will help you identify it. And they have little pictures. And that's really nice. And then I cross check that with a Sibley's or a Kaufman. the Sibley's is nice because you can get the Western birds in Sibley. And it has beautiful drawings with a lot of facts. I like the Kaufman because they are photographs, but they're composite photographs. Sometimes seeing a photograph that's similar to what you have really helps too.
0: It seems just kind of natural from all the birders that I know. You will invariably want to start writing down what you see because you'll be so excited and you'll you'll notice patterns. And so if you start to write down your, your information, you might as well start to share it with people. This is one of the exciting things about the Birder Feeder Watch programs or, or eBird is that you can then share your data that you collect and it can be used by researchers to help understand trends. Are we seeing birds migrating early? because of perhaps global climate change? Are we seeing a, a decline or increase in, in population size? So it's it's a fun way that you can get involved in some serious science as well.
3: And Tom, the nice thing is once you do that, you'll get feedback from them. Feeder Watch sends us the result. Another one is the Great Backyard Bird Count, which is One Long Weekend. That's another fun one. And they're all interlinked with eBird. So once you start one account, you can then get into the eBird as well. Even though Feeder Watch might be over, you could still do once a week, just go into eBird. All you need to do is create a place, an address, and you name your address. Then once a week, you can just write down all the birds you see, and you have to say how many people are there. And it's a stationary count, and you just say how many birds were there. And even if you've only watched 15 minutes, it doesn't have to be a 10-hour observation. So you can do as little or as much as you want. You
2: can do as many counts as you want. And it's also great for couples or a family because you're sharing information and you're helping each other find the field marks. There's so many birds in our yard that we both had to watch to make sure we weren't double counting and getting all the birds because it's yeah. numbers
0: yeah.
2: and species. So I would say for a family, for kids, you can start just with what species is it. And you kind of generate this feedback and conversation about what you're looking at, auto-identify.
0: And kids, I, I know a lot of folks are are stuck at home now with their kids, and they're trying to learn how to how to teach for, for maybe the first time, and birding can be an, an excellent way to incorporate lessons in biology. So you can start to understand your natural world better, the natural world around you, and you can... Give your kids something fun and educational to do at the same time. So this seems like a really good good time now to, to get into backyard birding.
2: Absolutely. We have a, a red current in our yard that we can see right out our front window. And we know that as soon as those blooms come out, we can start to expect the roof hummingbird, which migrates through here, usually into Oregon.
3: When Jim listed our, our feeders, he didn't mention the hummingbird feeder which is a very popular kind of feeder to have in your yard. A lot of our neighbors who don't really watch birds that much all have hummingbird feeders because they're so much fun to watch the hummingbirds.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the only feeder I have in my yard. But I have I have three of them, and I try to put them near some thick bushes because it, it seems that the hummingbirds like to, to get in and have some shelter and cover in these thick bushes.
3: And actually, hummingbirds eat little insects, especially when they're breeding yeah. Some people have had trouble with having feeders and having undesirable critters get in their yard, like maybe rats or mice or something like that. But we found that using shelled black oil sunflower seeds, we don't have that problem anymore. So that works out really well.
0: Yeah. Ken recommended as one way to reduce pest issues is to just watch your feeders and not, not overfeed. So if there is an excess of food, then that's when you're going to start to see a lot more pests. Do you all have a, a favorite bird? Do you look forward to a particular time of the year? Does spring is it marked by Rufus hummingbirds?
3: Rufus hummingbirds are lovely and we, we have a little bet to we write down when we think they're going to arrive, what date. The bird that I just love seeing when we start our feeder watch program are the Townsend's warbler. They have a little black mask like a zorro. They're really beautiful birds. The female So you learn a lot by keeping watch on the feeders. We were given a wreath feeder. It's like a hollow wreath and you mash up the suet cakes. You can cut one suet cake into four and then mash them into balls and then roll them into the feeder. So the Townsend seem to really like that feeder because they can land in it and just be inside the hoop and eat from that feeder. So I really love my Townsend.
0: As you said, it... Having a catio, it's better for your cats. They they will live longer lives. I mean, it's better for the birds. Cats are just like us; they like to birdwatch too. So, having this this space for them outside, they will really enjoy it. So, I, I hope people listening will will start to to think about their own catio design. It can be a fun new addition to your house, your your new house project when you're when you're stuck at home. Other other ways to help improve bird habitat in your backyard or front yard. Native plants. Yeah, native plants. Go on. That's the
2: biggest deal.
0: So now is nest building season. I I saw a bird collecting things for its nest the other day. Do you have any tips or recommendations to help birds successfully nest in your yard or elsewhere?
2: You should have all of your trimming and pruning done by early March. That's that's the best time to prune plants anyway. And, And once you get to middle March, you shouldn't be pruning vegetation.
0: Yeah, bad for your trees. In, in addition to the birds, so if you're if you're pruning, you generally want to get it done before things start to blossom and, and bud. That is the time. So early winter is your best time, especially for fruit trees. That that's very important.
3: But if you're just in your yard, just trimming branches, it's good to that way you're not going to accidentally disturb a nesting bird. Yeah.
2: And if you're still planting things in your yard, things like the wax move, evergreen all year, when birds fly in there, they disappear. <laughs> yeah it's just dark and, and that's what they like to nest in something that's protected Yes blue blossom is also very nice. Our birds love
0: our blue blossom
3: It's really important as a bird bath.
0: Oh yeah bird bath the Go birds on.
3: love to drink and bathe in our bird bath. We got a very simple one from wild birds. A good thing to note for bird baths is not to have them be really slick. It's sort of maybe counterintuitive, but by having a rough surface, that's easier for them to grip onto. And so if the water level goes down, it's not such a big deal. But do dump it out and rinse it often. That's why I like having the bowl that's removable because it's easier for me to Mm -hmm.
0: clean than a big concrete one, which is a little bit more challenging. Yeah, smart. So thank you so much and have a lovely day. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. With your birds this spring. And stay safe. Wash your hands. Oh, definitely. Bye-bye.
3: Thanks. Bye.
0: Bye. Join me were Donna and Jim Clark from the Redwood Region Audubon Society and Ken Burton, uh, local birder and author of Bird Books. You can find Ken's book online. Thank you for joining us for another Eco News Report. And thanks to my guests, Jim and Donna Clark from the Redwood Region Audubon Society, as well as Ken Burton, local birder and bird book author. Join us for more environmental news from the north coast of California on this time and channel next week.